Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. And now from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files with your host, David Axelrod. Kelly Ayotte burst on the national political scene in 2010. The Attorney General of New Hampshire, she was elected to the United States Senate and had a very, very active term there, was a great ally of Senator John McCain and Lindsey Graham, was considered a vice presidential prospect in 2012, and then lost her seat in 2016 narrowly to Governor Maggie Hassan. Senator Ayotte was a visiting fellow at the Institute of Politics. I sat down with her this week to talk about her career, uh, her fateful decision not to endorse Donald Trump in the election, and whether she had any regrets about that. Kelly Ayotte, so good to see you here at the Institute of Politics. You have the fresh, relaxed look of someone who is out of Washington. It's a it's amazing, David. I really appreciate being here. Uh, but there is something that all of a sudden that crease in your brow gets a little more relaxed. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, that's that that is good. Um, I, I want to ask you about the journey that took you uh, there, mm-hmm. and uh, which began in New Hampshire. Yes. Um, and uh, your 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 mom was. This is kind of unusual, but she was active, right? She was a lobbyist or? Yeah, so she, well, she worked for, um, my mom is, my mom is, a, she's a great lady. She, uh, my parents divorced when I was six years old. And so my, I was always with my mom and she never finished college, but then started with, it was then New England Telephone, but became Verizon and then I'm, um, other configurations, but worked her way up through the company from, uh, you know, basically a service rep to eventually did government their relations. government relations yeah. for the, for the company in New Hampshire. So that was her, um, her career background. And then when she retired from that, she worked with, uh, you know, some other folks and did some of that for some clients in Concord. So that was her background, but I don't even think I knew what that meant growing up. It wasn't like we had you know, huge political discussions at the dinner table. Yeah. So politics wasn't something that you knew from an early age? That no, you were... not at all. I mean, I never, I mean, my mom, you know, may have had this job working for a company um, representing them on issues, but never worked on a campaign. I mean, ironically, the first campaign I ever worked on was my own. And so, uh, so not a, a political family and that, and even at the kitchen table we talk about issues but not you know not kind of this campaign or that campaign and you went off to uh, Penn State yes uh why there so um my stepfather my mom remarried when I was nine years old and my stepfather's a Penn State grad so I would hear him talk about Penn State all the time love Penn State love Penn State football and of course as a teenager I was like oh Penn State 
And I was, I didn't want to go see the college, but we were on the college tour up and down the East coast. And, uh, my stepfather, Jim was like, well, you got to at least check it out. So the story is I'm sleeping in the back. We get on campus. I wake up, I get out of the car. I look around and I was like, I only applied there. I got in. Yeah. I hear that all the time from people. You know? I just knew. Just I walked like, in. I'm like, okay, this is where I'm going to college. They just see a place and they say, this is the... Yeah. My own son, I, I saw it happen uh, with him. Uh, and then somewhere along the line, you decided that you were going to go to law school. I did. Um, you know, when I was much to my... One of my professors who was one of my mentors in college is chagrin because he wanted me actually to go on and become a professor. And I told him that I was going to be, you know, go to law school and that I'd be a lawyer. And he's like, you want to be a lawyer? Why would you want to do that? Uh, and so I realized... Why did you want to do that? Because I, you know, first of all, I was a political science major and I didn't, and I had a minor in business, but I, I didn't have any thoughts of running for office or anything at that point. But I realized that, you know, being a lawyer, there's so many areas you can be a lawyer and you can be an advocate and you can advocate for your client. And I enjoyed doing that. I enjoyed, you know, finding a cause, something I care about. Even in college, I was involved in student government. So so that just seemed like a natural fit of what I would do next. You know, I should have, before I asked you about that, I, I you talked about your parents getting divorced when you were six and uh, that you were always with your mom. How did that shape your sensibilities? I mean, was your dad around at all? I mean, did So he... my dad, uh, he's a wonderful guy, but he lived in Oregon. And my mom, he went to graduate school in Oregon. So when they separated, my mom went back to where she's from, which is New Hampshire. So I would, you know, visit my dad, but I was really always much more with my mom. And it did shape, it did shape me because my mom always worked. Um, you know, I would like a after school, I'd come home, you know, take care of myself. Uh, I was always got the sense of independence from my mom and she very much instilled with me just sort of the whole idea of, you know, you can, you can do it, you know, you just go do it. And so I just think her values were imparted on me there. And I saw her work really hard. And even, I remember even being a kid when, you know, when we were, when she was single, you know, it's hard. We moved in with a, we moved in with, a another woman who was widowed and her kids, like when we were, and I remember that too. So it's just a different perspective, I think, of just kind of be able to stand on your own two feet and and figure out, you know, how do, how do you do it and how do you be independent? So you went off to Villanova Law School. Yes. And um, you clerked for a Supreme Court justice. Yeah, State Supreme Court Justice, Justice, justice Horton. Yeah. And then you went and, and into a firm and started working on litigation. Yeah, I, I clerked when I first got out of law school, and then I spent about four and a half years in a private firm and uh, in their litigation department. And fortunately, like many things, I discovered what I really wanted to do with my life uh, because one day I got handed, um, I got the opportunity to work on a court-appointed criminal case in that big firm, and it ended up in a three-month trial in federal court, and I handled, uh, I was the junior lawyer on it, very serious criminal case, and I handled the DNA evidence. And once I did that trial, I was like, I, I need, there's something else I need to do with my life. I really wanted to go work in the public sector, and that's how I ended up at the Attorney General's office. This was Stephen Burke, is that the... Yeah, it was a very serious case. Uh, you know, these men from Charleston, Massachusetts, were charged with committing bank robberies up and down the East Coast, 
and part of the predicate acts are racketeering conspiracy, two armored car guards murdered, and uh, six defendants. And so I was the junior lawyer along with a senior lawyer representing Stephen Burke, who was really alleged to be the leader of, uh, of this group that was committing these bank robberies. And so it changed what I realized I wanted to do with my life. And, uh, you know, I always say, especially I, I had the chance to talk to some law students this morning, and I said to him, you know, you got a great opportunity to do, there's so much you can do with a law degree, so find something you care about and that you're passionate about. And that, that case made me realize that I wanted to go be a prosecutor. Yeah, you went from the defense side to the uh, prosecutor side. What, I did. What, what made you make that decision? I saw how important the justice system was, and I also saw that I wanted to see justice done, make sure that it was administered fairly and done well um, when people were wronged. And that's what I got the passion for. But I also it also gave me immense respect for uh, what defense counsel does. So I was always a strong advocate, even when I was attorney general, for the role of our public defender's office, because our system does not work unless you have excellent advocacy on both sides. Now, your, uh, your attorney general's office is different than some states in that you handle uh, uh, criminal acts like homicide. I mean, they have their own homicide yeah. unit, and you very quickly were heading up their homicide unit. Yeah, it's a little different. I mean, New Hampshire is different in a couple of regards. First of all, it's an appointed position. So I believe there's only a handful of states in the nation, maybe five, that are appointed rather than running for office. And also, you're the chief law enforcement officer and the chief legal officer. And as part of that, the homicide murder prosecutions have always been conducted out of the AG's office. And so there was a special unit, the homicide unit within that office, that worked on those cases. And because I had done a defense case uh, where PCR DNA evidence was relatively new and I knew about it, I got put on murder cases very quickly. Kind of grisly, isn't it? Very grisly. And honest, these cases were very uh, horrible cases. And I was, you know, a relatively young woman at the time. And I think about it now that I'm a parent because the to today, the worst case I ever prosecuted, which I will never forget, was a, a rape and murder of a six-year-old little girl. Mm. And this was before I was a mother. I think I was thinking about my um, trial partner the other day, and he had two little girls. And I'm like, how did he do it? Um, so, yeah, those cases are very uh, difficult. Um, and, and especially with the, you know, the surviving family members of, of they've gone through so much of making sure that they understand the process too and feel like the trial is is you know fair to them and fair to everyone one of the cases that you were involved in was quite a famous case the, the Dartmouth yes. murders you know we had this case in uh, in Chicago back in the in the 20s or 30s the Leopold and Loeb case yes where uh, there were a couple of students here right. at the University of Chicago who wanted to commit the perfect crime and killed a young boy uh, and Clarence Darrow ended up representing very uh, famous and famous troubling case. Yes, troubling. Yeah, y- you. This this has some parallels. To, it does to that. It was a real murder mystery for a, a while, and then well, will you tell the story? 
It really was. So you had two picture, you know, kind of sleepy Hanover and actually Aetna, which is right essentially adjacent to Hanover. Uh, beautiful home, two lovely professors, Half and Susanna Zantop. Uh, Half was an earth sciences professor and Susanna was a German professor. Uh, and they were murdered in their home brutally, uh, stabbed to death, throats slit, just a very horrible, bloody murder scene. And it really, the whole community and not just the community, it shocked the community, but it actually shocked not the country and the world. I mean, we had press that came in on this case from around the world. It, it drew so much attention and we didn't know who did it. We started with the obvious who would want to do harm to them, who would know them, you know, and it was through good police work through, you know, we were there for over two weeks before we had really a strong lead of connecting forensics at the scene and the purchase of these particular kinds of knives because a sheath was left at the scene that connected us to these two teens in Chelsea, Vermont, which is a sleepy town in Vermont, just adjacent to Hanover over the border, where um, 16 and 17-year-old boys who otherwise you thought normal life, uh, you know, never, no huge indications of trouble in their past, uh, and come to find out they committed cold-blooded murder. What was their motivation? You know, it was one of those things that was very difficult to comprehend and understand even now, even though I know what happened. So the 17-year-old Robert Tullock, who is actually serving a life sentence, he, um, his, he, he had talked to the younger one, James Parker. They wanted to see what it was like to kill someone. And they had this harebrained... Really is like Leopold. It was. They really did. What was it like to kill someone? And also a harebrained scheme that they were going to rob whoever they killed. And they were going to, you know, travel to Australia and do these kind of fantasy-like things. Um, And so there were... We never quite were able to fully understand because it's so hard to comprehend that someone would commit such evil acts and not have, you know, some motivation or you can obviously never... Makes that that makes those cases harder to solve. Very difficult to solve. We were only able to solve it because they made some mistakes on mm-hmm. the forensics on the scene and great police work. I mean, this case had this the state police, the local police, the FBI came in, and I was a you know a pretty young woman at the time. I had just finished trying a first degree murder case, and I'll never forget. I was waiting for the jury uh, with my trial partner at the time, and the attorney general called me. Uh, and I, you know, when you're in a trial, it's like so intense. You're, you're right. just like, you're not doing anything. You're like eating ramen noodles and like going and yeah, it's and, like a campaign. Yeah, it's a camp. It's a campaign, yes. David. A trial is yes. like that. And so I was just already kind of really exhausted. And the attorney general said, "Did you hear what happened in Hanover? I want you to go up and handle this case." And so I got thrust in this. And what I didn't appreciate at the time was just the media. I'd never experienced. So I was, we didn't know anything. And every day I'd have to go out there and and try to answer questions when I knew nothing. Like, and, you know, so that really annoyed the press. And that was probably my first good experience training. with good training. Yes. I had no idea that this would, you know, be something that I would have to do in the future yes. for other reasons. But yeah, no, it was a very tough case. But it was a... It was a case that drew a lot of attention in our state. And drew attention to you. Interesting enough, it did. Um, It drew the governor's attention, right? It did. I mean, I was, again, when I was at the attorney general's office, my job, I I think, 
especially important when you're administering the law, when you're prosecuting, it cannot be political in any way, it has to be done very independently. And so I was not involved in politics at all. In fact, I was a registered independent at the time. I wasn't even a registered Republican. And I got a call out of the blue with the then newly elected governor's transition team. Hey, we've noticed you. Do you want to come interview to be the governor's legal counsel? So that was my first real injection in the political world. And you, But you didn't stay there very long. I didn't. Um, Apparently in your interview, you, you told them that you'd like to be attorney general. Sometime. We should point out in your state, the governor appoints the, the attorney governor general. The governor appoints the attorney general, confirmed by the executive council, because yeah. we have five elected executive counselors throughout the state. So that was a pretty big move to go in there and say that. Well, it was kind of crazy, but I knew one thing, having served in the attorney general's office, if you come in the New Hampshire attorney general's office, you will see on the wall the pictures of every attorney general. Going back to like, I think a guy on a horse, like you know, way back in the 1800s. But probably all, all guys. guys. Yeah. And I'll never, I'd go up to see the attorney general to brief him on something. And I was like, why is it all guys? And so when I was asked to interview for the governor's legal counsel, I decided, okay, I don't know that I want to do that job, but it's a really, obviously it's a very interesting job. Many people would want to do it. So what I really want to do is serve as attorney general. But I was kind of young and crazy, naive. It was it was crazy. So I went in, and when I interviewed, I said, "It's really, I'm really honored that you have me come in for this job. But I think you should make me attorney general." And they kind of laughed at me. You know, they laughed at me, and uh, but they liked my spunk. And the governor offered me the job as legal counsel. And you, but pretty quickly appointed you deputy attorney yes. general. Yes. What I realized when I went over to be legal counsel for the governor is that the Believe it or not, I missed the attorney general's office. I did one legislative session with him. So I actually learned a lot about how the legislature operates through that in the governor's office. But the political world just wasn't what I wanted to do. And so fortunately, he appointed a new attorney general. And uh, that new attorney general wanted to have me come back and be the deputy. And the governor was supportive of that. So that's how I ended up being the number two in the office. Well... In in a uh, un, Sarah, this business can be serendipitous. Well, this business of life. You realize quickly that life is serendipitous. On because some of he ran stuff. into some problems. He did. Yeah, it was um, it was a very hard time. I was actually expecting my, our first child, Kate, who's now thirteen, and I was literally six months pregnant. And so the then Attorney General Peter Heed uh, ran into some problems at a domestic violence conference and which I was not I, I was not at at the time and so so it was a it was a hard situation I mean he he ended up resigning it became a big controversial issue I was appointed the first when woman. you say, when, when we say that's euphemistic when we say ran into problems he misbehaved at this conference and so well yeah that was the and so I I um you know I was on on thrust into violence, a very difficult to... situation because here he was, I was his deputy, and this happened. Obviously, I wasn't there. And, and so it was a very difficult situation. And so I was appointed the first woman attorney general. And I was six months, seven months pregnant at the time. And so not only was I appointed the first woman more quickly than I ever thought I would, it really changed my, um, I can assure you my maternity leave pretty quickly. Yeah. And, uh, and then I dealt with all the questions about, you know, what's it, you know, 
not only being the first woman, but here you are, how are you going to manage the having a baby and, yeah. and doing and being, you know, attorney general. It's interesting. And it was, because so many is, of those questions yeah. that we probably face less of them now, but it was amazing. All the questions I got. How, how did you handle it? You know, um, very, first of all, I had a lot of help. Like I, my husband is very supportive, but my parents live pretty close aunts and uncles, a lot of family help. And I also, you know, I think the AG's office was a pretty family-friendly office. I mean, I joked recently, I was at a woman's conference talking about this, but my office is the attorney general's office. I had just had a baby. I had to set up a mini fridge in the little office to the side so that I could, you know, pump so that I could bring milk home to my kids. So we just, we, all of a sudden the office was thrust into, we have a woman who's attorney general and we're just going to deal with it. And fortunately for me, I had been in the office. I knew the team. They knew me. So we just all worked together. You know, um, I, I've written about this. I um, One of the things, one of the great regrets I have is the kind of sacrifices I asked my family to make. And it's true. My kids in it's particular, hard. when I was coming up and doing my career and working on campaigns, which were all enveloping and so on. And I really, I wish I had those years back. It's intense. But, but, but having said that, it was considered excusable for husbands to do that. And it, and the burdens fell more heavily, certainly fell heavily on my wife, but, uh, the standards were, were different and, um, the standards were different. They still are different. I mean, we've come a long way on these issues, but there's still, I think, some residual different standards out there. And let me give you the example. Um, I had both. I had my daughter, Kate. I was attorney general for five and a half years. So our daughter, Kate, and then I was actually reappointed, uh, not by Republican governor, by a Democratic governor, Governor Lynch. Yes, twice. I served under Governor Lynch actually longer than I served under Governor Benson. But um, then I had my son also, Jacob, when I was attorney general. So the public was sort of used to me being in this very public position of having children. And But when I ran for office and my first primary, it was a really tough race. And it surprised me and it surprised my husband even more how many people ask me what's going to happen to your children? Because I had held a very public position where I had clearly had children. I was a chief law enforcement officer of the state and had significant responsibility. And so I was really surprised how often I got that question. And of course, my male counterparts never, ever got that question. Yeah. And the most offended person by that question was my husband, who sometimes would be at these events, and he's like, I mean, I'm a parent too, you know, so. Yeah, I, I mean, well, just to be clear, what I was saying before wasn't that the standards are different then and now, although I think there are differences. Well, I it's think It's that the standards been... are different between men and women. Well, they are. I mean, they are. You're, first of all, you're asked different questions. When you, their standards are different, and when you're a pr professional woman, and when you're, for example, running for office, you could have, you know, men who have young children and they're never going to be asked the questions I was asked. And they're not going to be judged in the same way on these issues. So it is different. It's a different standard. I mean, this is, and it's challenging. It's really challenging for 
for for men and women, but women especially, I think, of of trying to figure out how do I have a career and, you know, how do I be a good mom and how do I be... I think we just saw an example of it. Uh, our senator, Tammy Duckworth, just had a baby. Which I think is, they had to change the rules on the Senate so she floor. could bring the baby onto the Senate so floor. She, right, exactly. I think it's wonderful that they did that. Long time coming. You know, these are changes that we see happening. And Some would argue that there have been babies on the Senate floor before they were just... Well, grown, but... <laughs> I didn't want to go there, David. Um <laughs> But you know what I, I loved about, like, for example, being the first woman attorney general, people would always ask about that. I said, there's only one great thing about being the first is I'm not going to be the last. I mean, you know, that's these things, these ways get paved. And so, you know, Tammy Duckworth is wonderful that that she's able to really to have a baby, be a senator and and uh, that hopefully the body will support her and all that. Were uh, the expectations of you uh, as a woman on issues uh, challenging as well? I know that you've you've had a fairly consistent position on uh, abortion, mm-hmm. and uh, that position has been that it should be limited to cases of uh, uh, health, life, right, and rape, and rape, rape and incest. Yeah, yeah, and that led you to into some battles uh, when you were attorney general. Uh, uh, with Planned Parenthood and others. Yeah, although interesting, yeah, I have, I argued a case for the U.S. Supreme Court and the name of the case is Ayotte versus Planned Parenthood. And the... Um, You'd be the Ayotte. I'd be the Ayotte. Yes. And that case was less, although I, you know, I am pro-life and that case is less about, was less about my ideology. I think people thought it was about my ideological viewpoints, but it really wasn't. For me, it was more the legislature passed a law and my job as attorney general was to defend it. And so that's how I viewed my role there in the sense that the legislature passed a parental notification law. And so I defended it to the United States Supreme Court. Uh, so I, I, I think that as attorney general, you do have to respect the separation of powers. And there are times you have to defend laws as long as they're not you know, blatantly unconstitutional. Um, you have to defend them, even if you don't agree with them. So yes, I agreed with that law, but that was less of why I brought that case than I felt that was my responsibility. Um, because you did deal with uh, violent crime, I'm sure the issue of guns came up quite a bit as well. Mm-hmm. New Hampshire's a hunting state. Yes. NRA is strong there. Yes. You've been highly rated by them uh, over the years. What is your view of where we are now uh you you saw what happened in florida sure um these kids have been pretty compelling parkland uh students and in calling attention to uh gun violence and we're sitting here in chicago so we're well uh, aware of it explain the dynamic of of this because you know almost there's almost unanimous support if you believe polling for things like universal background checks. There's strong consensus on things like bump stocks that they should be banned. There's there's a fairly strong uh, body of thought that semi-automatic weapons should not be commercially uh, available. Why does none... Uh, tell me what the pressures are on public officials uh, to maintain the status quo. Well, I actually think 
that the this whole debate um number one in some ways there's a little bit of a disconnect of where you live in the country and what your perspective is and so the issue itself has also been wrapped up in how people feel about their individual rights and their freedom and that's driven by perhaps what your experience is with firearms or what your background is and so in an inner city you're probably going to feel different than you do in rural new hampshire uh, based on your experience and what you see happening. So I would describe it, you know, less in terms of pressure. I mean, I think that the pressure piece is, is it's on both sides. I mean, I frankly have been, <coughs> I mean, I, I frankly have been, you know, attacked more on the gun issues by the left than probably almost anyone. Mm -hmm. So I understand that. I mean, there's lots of pressure to bear on both sides, but I think it's more about where people in the American public come on this. It's more about constituents than any pressure. But that, on some of these things, like I mentioned, like on, on, on universal background checks, there seems to be a, a, as close to a, a unanimous view as any issue that I've seen. And yet we can't, come together around it one of the reasons that we're not gonna that i don't see us coming together is there you may not you may not fully agree with everything that wants to that, that one side wants to do like say that the democrats want to do on gun control but there's a lot of common ground that that isn't being dealt with that isn't being dealt with even on the background check issue on the bump stock issue on the mental health issue on the um, the issue of education and prevention, and I think that why why aren't they for it? Because people are concerned, for example, on the universal background check issue, that that's somehow going to lead to a gun registry. And so there are different viewpoints that that can that that my constituents have on this issue. But what frustrates me when I look at it and I look at how this debate has developed is there are things that maybe don't go as far as one side or the other wants to go that could be done now and today that would be voted on and voted yes. Um, they did some of it in the appropriations bill and the omnibus, but I think that we're in this situation where it's become a too much of a political football instead of saying, I don't... I don't fully agree with you or you don't fully agree with me. Why don't we at least start where we agree? And then you can keep fighting like hell you want. Well, you want universal background checks, then keep pushing for it. And I'm going to keep worrying about the registration implications. And there's middle ground there somewhere in between. Um, I don't know if it's in between or somewhere. But here's, I think there's a disconnect between that somehow there's a feeling that that if you aren't willing to do all these things, then somehow you don't want public safety or you don't, you know, care about safety. And for me, it gets frustrating because I've lived it. I've been a prosecutor. I understand the issues. And one of the biggest gaps we have is actually enforcing. I mean, they th people think it's an excuse, but every one of these cases, I can tell you if we actually put more resources into enforcing as a first step, it would be a big step. What, what, what is the, uh, what is the case, as I mentioned, you know, the polling is overwhelming. So I hear you when you say people are worried about gun registries, although it doesn't exactly show up in the 
polling, but what well, is the a, argument against having, I mean, 60% of gun sales, there are background checks. There's 40% or so, or some percentage that, that yeah, is, that's is not, not but, fully but, accurate, whatever, yeah. there is a percentage of gun sales that, that don't go through background checks. Here in Chicago, a lot of weapons that are recovered come from gun shows in Indiana, for example, like 50% of the guns come in uh, from Indiana. W- what is the what is the argument for not just saying no? Every every commercial sale, whether it's at a gun show or a um, or at a, a gun shop, should just go through the same process. Yeah, I'm, I'm just gonna try one more time. I don't want you to. I don't want to get into like political haunches, but no. I mean, I I'm. I think someone like me, I'm for background checks. I didn't end up voting for the Manchin-Toomey proposal because I had some issues with it. But I think there is a way to get to where we have background checks that can ally people's concerns that universal means, I mean, even issues like some of the biggest issues we have aren't going to be addressed with the background check issue. I mean, Mm -hmm. unfortunately, if you look at all these incidents, they're not going to be solved with the background check. Most of these people were, would not have been discovered in the background check system. That was not the issue in some in most of these mass that I can think of as I think about the facts of each of them. Yeah, although if you look at state by state and some of the analysis that's been done, there is some percentage. Like there, It's surprising how many people with uh, felonious backgrounds and sometimes violent felonious backgrounds. Try to buy guns. Right. right. And, and get stopped by background right so if you extend them then you'll catch david if you prosecute them too we'll get more people know there's no teeth in that so few prosecutions happen well i'm for that people that violate those laws yeah i agree that that i I don't don't think it's an either or thing yeah i don't think it's an either or thing either but both sides should get together and figure out what can they agree with here um because i don't want a felon to get a gun of course not i was a prosecutor uh we lawful gun owners don't want a felon to get a gun. And they also want... I think that's why most of them say, yeah, we, we're for universal. They also checks. don't want uh, dangerously mentally ill people to have right. a gun. And in my state, we had a list that still the people who were adjudicated dangerously mentally ill were never on the list. And that, you know, that that needs to be fixed too. And I think you did support the no, no uh, fly, no buy I did. To I supported keep that. Who are on no fly list from buying. Uh, I supported weapons. that. That's why I think you know when people talk about like for example, the NRA didn't agree with that, but I thought it made sense. I mean, I dealt with national security issues. I I was concerned about what happened, um, you know, in Orlando, mm-hmm. and I thought that that was something that would be important to prevent that in the future. Um, your decision to run for the Senate. So you, here you are, you're an independent, you're not political, the sort of determinedly not political. Yeah. And so what made you decide to, I know you were heavily courted, uh, <laughs> that's uh, one thing, but... Um, I ran for the Senate because, well, first of all, I was actually quite surprised when Judd Gregg decided he wasn't going to run for another term. I mean, he obviously was... Uh, nominated at one point to be Commerce Secretary, and that that uh, kind of fell apart. But um, I have a lot of respect for him, and I thought for sure he would then run for another term of the Senate. So I was surprised by by it. Um, I have to tell you, though, I was looking at what was happening with the country, 
and I didn't agree with what was happening. Um, I didn't like the turn on the healthcare piece, uh, money spent on the stimulus, a whole host of issues came up where philosophically, I just didn't like what was happening. And then there were people who came to me and said, you should do this, surprisingly. And the probably one of the most important people who said, I think you could do this is Judd Gregg, who I had a lot of respect for, who was my predecessor. Um, but at the end of the day, it was really my husband and I who decided we would do it. And it was kind of crazy because I had never run for office before. And I had to resign my position as attorney general. And I took a year and a half off from work. And we just ran the numbers at home, put them on the wall. Could you, could we go from two to one income for a year and a half? My husband has a small business. And uh, do we, do we want to do this? And I didn't actually know fully what I was getting into, which was probably good because it's better not to know when you first run yeah. <laughs> how crazy and hard yeah. it is. And uh, so resigned my job and decided I would give it a shot. And what did you learn about politics, about yourself uh, from, from the experience of, of running and then the experience of serving? Yeah, I think... The one thing about running is um, it really bears you open, meaning anything that you had for flaws, I mean, it's out there for people to see, and anything that you had for strengths are also out there. And uh, what I learned from it is I learned a lot about myself because you're put in situations where in a campaign context where you really have to, to convince people why they should vote for you and why what is it that you have to offer in representing them uh, that they need to know about and be able to communicate effectively. And I learned a lot, and I think I learned a lot about how to communicate that I didn't know before. Um, and then in terms of serving, I'd never been a legislator. So learning on being a senator, I think relationships matter. I think your ability to build coalitions matter and doing your homework matters. Yeah. And you, you have an interesting state because you had a pretty active kind of uh, uh, cohort on the right. You had to win a primary in the first uh, instance that was yeah. pretty competitive. And yet it's a swing state. It's It's got both. It's a challenge on both fronts. So I won my first primary by 1,662 votes. It was really close. And but it, who's counting? Right? But who's counting? And three guys that I ran against. One of them was a big self-funder, spent about eight million dollars against me. And so it was. It was when like the Tea Party was almost in full force then, 2010. And so our state, the Republican primary electorate, they're conservative. I mean, they're, you know, they are probably not as conservative as you may find in other states in the nation down south or something like that, but they're a conservative electorate and uh, in a swing state. And so it uh, it really is a state that can go back and forth. And, and also walk a minefield if you're... And also in part because we have such an important role in the presidential election. I mean, this is a state where people are used to seeing you and they are, you know... 
they're not they're not impressed about you, right. your senator whatever they yeah. see presidential candidates and they want to have the opportunity to ask you a question and they expect you to be accessible and so being out there not having run for office before even though i was in a public position as attorney general really being out there so much and and uh it's something you have to get used to when you run for office and they you know obviously even now i go to the grocery store and it takes me longer probably than your average person to do grocery shopping when you um <laughs> Uh, yeah, in fact, I have to tell you, I was a reporter and I, uh, before uh, I went into politics and I covered a New Hampshire primary and I went with one of the presidential candidates to a high school. And when it was over, I asked the ki- uh, one of the kids how he felt. And he said, oh, very impressive. I said, would you vote for him if you could? Because he wasn't even old enough to vote. And the kid was horrified. I said, I haven't met all the candidates right. for president yet. I can't comment on this until I meet them all. Which It's... It's so true. And it was the same. It's the same way running for statewide office. Uh, I think especially in the primary context, Yeah, you know, just because for the for the nomination of your party, I can say for either party, I think you really have to get out and reach out and touch people. And and you know, I can't even I can't even name the number of debates and candidate forums I did in that primary. Yeah, it was like endless. So in the Senate, you became uh, you were on the Armed Services Committee. Uh, you were um, a strong ally of Senator McCain, Senator Graham. Uh, it was as if uh, Senator Lieberman left and you took the slot in the three amigos. Nobody can take Senator Lieberman's place, trust yes. me. <laughs> okay. But um, so I want to ask oh, you a, a little bit about what you're uh, about what you are uh, uh, what you're seeing now because this is a very eventful moment. Uh, first in North Korea. And what what is your based on your experience, what are what are what are you seeing that encourages you, and what are what are the yellow lights that you would uh, that you would display? What I'm seeing that encourages me is that uh, an unconventional approach by President Trump is been a catalyst in part to get people uh, to the table. And in in part, I think a little bit of a fear about what he may or may not do. The crazy man syndrome is driving uh, is driving a discussion that needs to happen. So I'm encouraged by the fact we're in this position with the South Koreans and the North Koreans, you know, meeting with the Chinese, obviously stepping up a little bit more to get North Korea to the table. Uh, so whether we will get a result out of that remains to be seen. And I am skeptical of North Korea, given their history. And, you know, uh, other administrations have been in similar yes. situations, mm-hmm. and they have not followed through North Korea, and they've used it as a subterfuge to get economic relief. So the jury's out, but I am encouraged by it. Let me ask you this. The president is obviously very eager, and and, and I, I want to go on the on record saying we all should be eager for a good result of course for but, for the world and our country for the world and our country but um there is a concern it seems to me that um in eagerness for a deal you can accept a deal that is um that ultimately is not a good deal because as you point out the north koreans are the least transparent regime on the planet and their history has been to make representations and then not live up to them. Right. 
Which is kind of how I felt on the Iran deal with Secretary Kerry. No, no. We'll, I felt he was over-anxious for a deal. I think we could have had a better deal there. But that deal, what, whether I know you disagree with it, and we'll talk about that yeah. in a second, uh, was years in the in the making, and there were other nations involved True, in that process. True, there were multilateral process. sanctions involved in process, yes. Right. This is a, this is a very abrupt... So, I mean, we remember the State of the Union was in January and the president was devoted. Uh, mm-hmm. He had Otto Wambier's parents there and he devoted a, a large portion of mm-hmm. his speech to talking about the savagery of the North Korean leader who he now calls honorable, uh, who says he's uh, he's being open. Um, well, I do not think the president in the anxiousness for a deal should enter a deal that is not that is not satisfactory because we have allies that we cannot put in a position like we can't undermine South Korea's security for the sake of a deal that's insufficient and our own security because they have demonstrated last year they 17 ICBM tests so that has the capability of hitting the United States of America we cannot have a deal so I will be as critical of this president as I was of President Obama if there's somehow a deal for the sake of a deal that has no teeth and is insufficient. And I just think the jury is out on it. And interestingly enough, I saw an interview the other day by um, former Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice, and I agree with her on this. I think the president does need to make sure that he is surrounded in this and leave the details to professionals who have studied North Korea for a long time so that the terms of any agreement that are reached are real, they're verifiable, they're concrete, um, and so that North Korea can't use this as a sub- subterfuge for legitimacy that it does not deserve. Let, let's talk, turn to Iran bec- uh, and the deal that you and I disagreed mm. Uh, on because we are where we are now, mm-hmm. uh, and Secretary Mattis, uh, Secretary Pompeo, and he was the CIA director, and everyone involved in the administration uh, uh, seems to, seem to be in agreement that uh, Iran is complying by the terms of that agreement. Do you uh, do you think that the U.S. should uh, pull out of that agreement? The deadline's coming up. Well, the president has imposed a deadline of May 12th, right? Yes. And my view is, is that he has brought the Europeans to the table and he should continue to push. There are, I think... For side agreements. There's a huge deficiency in that agreement. There's a couple of huge deficiencies. Number one, never, it's too short term. Iran's thinking long term about this nuclear program. One thing uh, with the information that Prime Minister Netanyahu brought out in the last day or so, it's back in 2003, but the knowledge that they have on the nuclear program is it Was still that a there. secret to anyone? You must have known that. No. You were, uh, you were, I, I mean, I don't think that... You that, were privy to the intelligence. I, I don't... I will The whole tell point you, of the agreement was that they were close to well, months away we from We wouldn't Obama. have entered the agreement. I, I don't know that there was anything surprising that the Iranians misrepresented their program. That was one of the reasons right. we were in this thing. Right. So that's not surprising. Right. But I think the point I would make from it, though, is they have the knowledge. They have the knowledge. And this agreement, essentially, uh, we don't have the leverage on them 
between 10 and 15 years, depending on how you look at the agreement and how you interpret the agreement. In addition to that, um, one of the pieces of legislation I introduced in the Senate I thought was a huge deficiency in their program was we did nothing to address their missile program. And they are very close, if not, I'm not privy to the intelligence now, at the point of uh, ICBM capability and ballistic missile capability. They've had a program. It's very far along. And we didn't deal with any of it. And they kept testing. So, and then there's obviously... There are sanctions in place relative to these things. uh, They're very weak tea. Mm -hmm. They need to be stronger. They're not really dealing with the heart of it. And Iran will argue, by the way, that... The deal, even though it didn't deal with it, dealt with it. They, in fact, wrote a letter to the UN, basically of that import, right after the agreement, saying if you try to impose on terrorism, our support for state terrorism, or terrorism, or the bliss or other issues, then we're going to view that as a breach of the agreement. So, if I were, um, I believe the president is right to be critical of this agreement. Um, I was critical of it from the beginning. I would like to see him say. Uh, use match, maximum leverage to ad- to address these serious deficiencies but would in, the in the end, agreement. Would the end, would you pull out of it? And I what wouldn't buy. The if, if they're not going to do it, if the Europeans aren't going to step up to deal with these other issues, then I would. I I would support him in withdrawing from the agreement because I think in the end they will balk and will want to do it. And what impact would uh, withdrawing from that have on the North Korean negotiations if the sense is that... Uh, that no agreement is uh, is necessarily sacrosanct. I'm less worried about that. I understand that that's an argument that people are making. Um, the reason that I am less worried about that is because North Korea is going to act based on its own self-interest. I don't think that if we pull out of the Iran agreement that suddenly they're going to think the same president who's entered the agreement, who he's going to think the agreement is sufficient, is suddenly going to pull out of it. Um, and and in the end, uh, for me, and in, the president has been clear on this, that it's an insufficient agreement, and it may even put him in a tougher negotiator negotiation position with the North Koreans saying, I will abide by an agreement if it's a tough agreement, but otherwise I'm not, I'm not going to honor it. And we have to remember the context for all this which is at the time of this agreement, it was not, it, it was an executive agreement. It was not approved as a treaty process. It was quite clear that there was a major part of the Senate that didn't like the agreement and was in opposition to it. Uh, so, well, well, you ultimately I, did vote on that. Yeah, I voted it, against it. Right, right. But not, but it was not a, sufficient numbers to overturn the agreement. Yeah, but it was it was a totally the way the legislation was set up was not you know not like a treaty approval. It was basically and a well, and the last last thing on this, if uh, you've got we had uh, uh, President Macron here, Chancellor Merkel, both urging the president not to mm-hmm. withdraw. Does it have an impact on our relationship with our allies if if he does? I think that. Um, it will have the impact, David. I believe the impact it's going to have is that uh, they are going to want to address these other issues, and so this is an area where the president should be tough. Um, speaking of the president, I mean, the French, well, even in this context, didn't necessarily like all. They were the tough guys in this agreement, so they'd like to see. I mean, even President Macron has said that he would like to deal with the length of the agreement and some of these other issues that he views as outstanding as well. Um. 
Speaking of the president, you ran for re-election in a tough environment in 2016. You <laughs> That's were in probably a, an understatement. <laughs> in, in a swing state. And one of the questions that sort of jammed you up was how to deal with him. You got asked a question in the debate about whether he was a role model. Right. And you, you, had a, you kind of uh, clutched on it and finally... Yeah, no, I made a mistake. Um, I think it just shows you when you're asked sort of a surprise question, you don't think about it. Because honestly, my initial answer was more about the role of the president. Yes, I could see as a role model because of the role of the president, not necessarily him in particular. And I quickly realized I'm like, that wasn't what I meant to say. Um, And of course, I had to hear about it the rest of the campaign on the TV. But was it damaging? Oh, I, it's hard to know in that election. It could be just as damaging as the fact that I didn't vote for him. Who knows? Mm-hmm. <laughs> when you have such eventually, a close election. Eventually, was it after the Access Hollywood tape, but you, you said you weren't going to vote for him? So after the Access Hollywood tapes came out, um, I realized in my heart that I couldn't sleep about this. I mean, my background is I was a prosecutor. I've dealt with sexual assault victims, domestic violence. I'm the, I was mother of then 12-year-old little girl. And I just decided that for me, um, it was more important to, to for my family, and especially my daughter, to know where I stood than to think about this as winning an election. I mean, the political calculus, for me, it was just what I thought was the right thing to do based on what was in my heart. And that's what I did. Do you have any regrets about that? No. And do you, has your attitude changed at all toward him? Do you see him as a role model today? No, I don't. Um, I don't. And I have to say that as I've reflected even more so on that debate question that you get asked, it's really hard to find, unfortunately, role models in the political context. And I'm not sure that's where I want my children to turn I know when one, it comes to the, the you know, for the, role models. For role models. Yeah, but that's I, there's kind so of a many sad others. Commentary. But there's so many other areas where, you know, there are people that S- I would rather Certainly you want have. the president to be a role model. Well, I think I would like everyone in public office to try to conduct themselves as a role model, of course. Uh, you did get called back, probably unexpectedly, to Washington <laughs> shortly after your election to uh, shepherd uh, Judge Gorsuch's nomination uh, for the Supreme Court. Well, you've already asked me about, obviously, what happened in the election, and you know where I stood, um, that I actually wrote in Vice President Pence in the election. And so I was as shocked as anyone that I got the call from... Uh, the administration asking to be the Sherpa for Justice Gorsuch. Maybe the president didn't know. Oh, no, he knew. <laughs> because the one question I had was, "Have has the president signed off on this before I decided to do it? Um, because I thought it was important, because it was a very important nomination for him. And uh, and for, you know, for me, it was going back, obviously, in the Senate right after having lost an election, and bringing Justice Gorsuch to 70 meetings in the Senate wasn't exactly how I thought I would spend my post-election time, uh, but I got to know him well, and it was an, an honor to get to know someone of that caliber. 
the reason that there was this vacancy was because, and you were in the Senate at the time, uh, Justice Scalia died, as you know, at the beginning of 2016, and Senator McConnell took the position that he wasn't going to call the president's nomination uh, mm-hmm. um, and um, of Merrick Garland uh, for the court. It, w- talk about the precedent of that. There's a great deal of anger, obviously, among uh, the president's among Democrats. It came up during the Gorsuch nomination. I'm sure it may have come up in some of the meetings that you sat It came in up on. repeatedly. It yeah. came out throughout. I mean, not surprisingly. Uh, my my take on this is, first of all, I was in the Senate when Harry Reid changed the rules on the Circuit Court of Appeals and the District Court judges. Basically, I didn't think the facts warranted it, and he pushed facts that weren't necessarily making his This case. was to end the filibuster on, yeah, on those nominations. But, but we had approved, I believe, as many judges, uh, if I can recall my facts, as that had happened in the Bush administration. We had approved many judges at that time. So I didn't think what he did was warranted, and he did a lot to undermine the institution when he took that move. And he set the stage. He set the stage for what happened with Justice Gorsuch. Um, and so, you, so you're saying what, what he did... You have to understand the context. No, I, I, I do. Yeah. He, but you're saying what he did uh, was, uh, was what caused McConnell to do what he did? I, I'm not saying it's a direct causation. I just want to understand the history here. Mm-hmm. That started us down this road. And then, frankly, when Justice Scalia passed away unexpectedly before the election um, with a lot at stake for the country with an upcoming election, uh, presidential election, and a shift in the court. We know that whoever replaced Justice Scalia, if it were someone, anyone appointed by President Obama, frankly, represented a shift in that court. And it was very Did you significant. Vote, you, you weren't in the Senate when Garland was... I, I was. was. I mean, when he when was he, when nominated. Um, no, not, no, but no, for, not for the for lower the, courts. For, for no, the uh, not for appellate the circuit. court. No, I was, not, I was not yeah. present um, in the Senate when he was approved as a circuit. Because he was a, a, with healthy, I mean, almost unanimous bipartisan But it's a completely... Support. I mean, it, that's a little bit of a red herring in the sense that just because you're approved for the Circuit Court of Appeals... You then have, obviously, a record of being a judge there, but also the implications of being a Supreme Court justice are so much greater, and the scrutiny is so much greater. So here's the question. Where do we draw the line? But let me just say, David, I don't have a doubt in my mind that had the tables been turned uh, with the same party configuration, with an upcoming election, and uh, if if the Democrats thought there was going to be a shift on the court that there's not a doubt in my mind that Harry Reid would have done the exact same thing that Mitch McConnell mm-hmm. did. So I felt that the sort of outrage, you know, for the system as a whole, uh, I I supported it because I, know I was you concerned. It, but you, and you explain why, but that's a different question than I, whether it's healthy. I don't like that the institution now has eliminated the 60 votes for Supreme Court and every judge. I think in what the about long the, the term holding of the institution. What about seat open for a year? I think if you're heading into a presidential election, as close as that was, that was the right decision to make. So is there a line that you, is there like a time element that should be applied? Uh, I'm not going to, obviously, we'd have to look at what happens in each situation. But the thing that bothered me about it is the the outrage on the other side. I have not a doubt in my mind they would have done the exact same thing. So it's kind of hard to... We'll never know. I just worry about, and uh, you and I have talked about this, uh, I just worry about... uh, 
sort of the slow degradation of democratic institutions and norms. And we can, we can talk about wh- who, which party contributed the most or, or it when. Took t- it took two but, parties to tango on this. Right, no but, uh, but, but the end result is, uh, is unhealthy. Well, I think it would have been better for the long term of the Senate to maintain the 60-vote threshold on the judiciary as a whole. And there's no doubt that all of this contributed both sides on this. And the reason I say that is that um, when you have, when the minority party does have a voice to some extent uh, on who gets on the federal bench, you can understand where the, the president is going to have to really look at more consensus candidates than where we are now. Mm-hmm. One person who I think that you would agree is has been a role model in many ways has been John McCain, who was such a close ally of yours and sadly Well, finds- that's true. That's very true. He's been, for me, uh, uh, certainly, and, and a mentor. And he, you know, tragically, he's dealing with grave health issues now, but he just released a book. Uh, and in the book... He said uh, he was very critical of the president. I have to confess I've not yet read John's book, but... One thing he said was he has declined to distinguish the actions of our government from the crimes of despotic ones. Uh, The appearance of toughness or a reality show facsimile of toughness seems to matter more than any of our values. Do you agree with that? That's a lot of words there. (laughs) I don't... But it's a pretty uh, simple idea. Yeah, I mean... I believe, first of all, when it comes to, you know, where we are with the president is that I, I would like him, I would like him to demonstrate some character. Um, You know, I would like him to, I think, like many Americans to, you know, spend less time on Twitter and, and spend, you know, obviously, his words matter, and I would like his words to be inclusive. I would like them to be thoughtful. Um, you know, for me, that that is important, uh, as I think it is for many Americans. There's still many policy issues I agree with. Well, on. you just spoke to. I did. Yeah. I mean, I agree with you know, but that doesn't mean that I necessarily would agree with how he says things and how he conducts himself sometimes. Um, one of the other thing that Senator McCain said that struck me was, I'm freer than colleagues who will face the voters again. I can speak my mind without fearing the consequences much, and I can vote my conscience without worry. And I thought that was an amazingly That's candid lot, yeah. observation. Mm-hmm. But it also speaks to the pressures uh, that uh, people come under, I mean, Senator Flake, for example, was critical of the president and found himself in a position where he didn't feel he could run for re-election mm-hmm. uh, in Arizona. Do, do you contemplate returning to public life? And is this environment discouraging uh, to you? I'm not contemplating anything right now other than I am really feel blessed to have more time with my kids and my husband. So I don't know whether I'll return to public life. It was such a great privilege to serve for almost 20 years in public life between being a prosecutor, attorney general, and a senator, and to represent the people of New Hampshire. But I think one thing that they do know about me um, is that I will call it like I see it. And, you know, my decision in the last election, I, I, you know, I don't know how 
it would have played out had I done it differently. But when you ask me, would I have changed my mind? No, I did it for my own moral compass and what I thought was right. So uh, tough, though, isn't it? Right now in the Republican Party, because he is the dominant force in the Republican Party right now. He is. I mean, he's the leader of our party for sure. He's the president of the United States, and and I, as an American, I want to see him succeed, not just because I'm a Republican, but right. for, for our country. So I think for Republicans, they need to be who they are. They need to obviously decide for themselves uh, where they're going to work for him and where they're going to work with him and where they disagree with him. I mean, I think we should be doing that with everyone in office uh, because we frankly not reap the benefits of being just party line on any party. And especially when the president says things that aren't inclusive, we should, you know, be clear about that, that that's not who we stand for as a party. Kelly Ayotte, it's great to be with you. Thank you so much for being with us at the Institute of Politics and uh, inspiring some kids. Thanks, David. Glad to be with you. Take care. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.